Thanks for pressing play, and welcome to Christopher Lockhead, Follow Your Different. And we are the Real Dialogue Podcast, or some people call us an oddcast, for business leaders, entrepreneurs, marketers, and category designers with a different mind. One night, hungry and tired, Mike Evans wanted a pizza. But getting a pizza delivered was a pain in the ass. He didn't want to call a million different restaurants to see who was open and who would, uh, who would deliver to him. So he did what every legendary entrepreneur, every legendary creator and innovator and category designers ever done. He quoted the big Lebowski and said, this aggression will not stand, man. I made that part up. I imagine that he did that, but I, he definitely got busy. <laughs> he definitely got busy. And what he did was he created a legendary company, a legendary service, a legendary network, and a whole new category. You see, he's the founder of Grubhub. And in his spare bedroom, he just wanted to figure out who would deliver a pizza to his apartment. Then with a $150 check from his first customer and ignoring his personal crushing college debt, he quit his job. And over the next decade, Mike grew his little delivery guide into the world's premier restaurant ordering platform, created the category and became the category king. Mike is one of those rare legendary entrepreneurs to take a startup from an idea all the way to an IPO and beyond. And Mike's got a new book out. I really enjoyed it. It's called Hangry, A Startup Journey. Uh, and Mike's doing what a lot of legendary entrepreneurs and category designers do. He's doing it all over again in a new category in the home improvement space with a company called Fixer. And on this episode, we dig into all of it. From how uh, reading, it, you'll, you're going to love this story. Mike figured out he needed to know how to sell. So he read a For Dummies book about selling, and it changed his life. Uh, we get into how success is more like a drunken stagger than uh, a pretty chart that goes up and to the right. And how to create billions in value for an entire ecosystem of people and more. By the end of this dialogue, you'll gain a whole new insight into what it takes for one person to create a radically different future that creates a massive amount of value for literally thousands of people. Now, are you an entrepreneur? Are you a category designer? Well, if you love marketing, I urge you to check out our other podcast, Lockhead on Marketing. Uh, recently on episode 165, we go deep on the 16 learnings from marketing legend George Lois. You see, George is often called the real Don Draper, although he didn't like that at all. <laughs> and he's famous for a lot of things. He's famous for legendary Esquire covers. He's the man who came up with I Want My MTV and many other piratey uh, marketing campaigns and strategies. He's a creator, he's a designer, and he's amazing. And he recently passed, and we dig into some of his biggest learnings on episode number 165, on Lockhead on Marketing. Now, as Joey Ramone said, hey ho, let's go. Well, Mike, it sure is great to see you. Thanks for coming on. Yeah, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. 
So I think uh, many of us, certainly I'll start by representing myself, want to just say thank you for Grubhub and thank you for being able to get legendary food at the front door. Uh, well, not only are you welcome, but I also want to thank 2002 Mike for doing it because I use the service a lot still too. So uh, <laughs> I understand that feeling. Uh, I hate cooking. And so I think Grubhub was probably a fairly uh, obvious solution to that problem uh, back in the day. Yeah. Well, hey, great job. We really appreciate it. And, um, you know, I live in a household with a, a woman who loves to cook. She's Italian, makes her own pasta, makes her own ketchup. I mean, it's just incredible Italian family. And because we like to eat, uh, sometimes um, we don't feel like cooking. And when I say we, I mean her. I help mildly. And then, you know, I don't know, maybe it's because we're getting a little older or whatever. Sometimes you just don't feel like the rigmarole of going out to a restaurant and sitting down and da 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 da, da. And this magical ability to press a button on your Star Trek communicator and have a very nice person show up at your house with some very warm food from one of your favorite local restaurants. It's a fucking miracle. <laughs> uh, yeah, I appreciate that. You know, the the transition from, you know, using your phone as a remote control for your life is a thing that started probably in like 2006 or 2008, maybe. Um, and it's, it, it's becoming ever more the expectation about how we live. And so, um, yeah, I mean, it was fun to be, at, you know, with Grubhub, fun to be at the beginning stages of that and get, you know, have one of the first apps in the app store. Um, but it's, um, you know, it's a, it's actually, a, I think, a fairly uh, logical extension of, you know, we don't go to the farm anymore. And we don't, at some point, we stopped going to independent grocers, we went to supermarkets. And then from supermarkets, we got better quality food and better convenience from restaurants. And then you know, the platforms that sit on top of restaurants can provide more convenience and, and I argue, more quality uh, you know, simply by, by directing people towards the best restaurants. Um, and so it's, it's a, it's a logical sort of continuation of a trend that's been happening for the last 70 years. And, uh, and, and sure. And if you look back on it, it seems intuitively obvious and re- remind me, uh, Mike, what year you started the company. Yeah. So I started Grubhub in 2002 as a delivery guide, uh, in my apartment. Um, I just wanted to find who delivered to me and the yellow pages was a terrible, a terrible way to organize that information. It's just alphabetical sort of for the whole city. And Chicago is 25 miles tall and, you know, three miles wide. And so uh, it, the restaurants that deliver the, to, to the Sox, you know, the, the White Sox area don't deliver to the Cubby area. And so it's <laughs> not useful to see it in a, in a big, uh, in a big yellow pages book. And so that was the original idea. Well, it isn't that interesting in that, the idea in the beginning, a directory of, of restaurants that deliver, yes? Yep. Yeah. And um, that, you would have thought, might have been obvious for the folks at the Yellow Pages to do. Or at Zagat yeah. to do. Or at Yelp to do. Or at Yahoo whatever's to do. Or, like, there's a lot of people that seem to have missed what was obvious to you at the time and is clearly obvious to all of us now. Yeah, so one of the things that... I, the idea was out there, right? So if you look at, um, there's a movie from 1998 called The Net starring Sandra Bullock. And she actually places, she's like a hacker or something. And she places an, an online order for a pizza in 1998, four years before I created Grubhub. And so the ideas were out there. And certainly Domino's Pizza has started playing with online ordering a little bit by that time. Um, they were, I think they were the first through a company called Quick Order. And then, um, but this idea that like, I just want to see the menus. Like I literally just can't even, I don't need fancy online ordering. I just want to see the menus for all the restaurants that deliver to me. That didn't exist 
And the reason it didn't exist, even if you fast forward all the way to 2022, how does somebody go about getting all the menus in a city? Well, Google will ask you to take a picture of your menu and upload it. Nobody in their right mind would hop on a bike and like go pick up all the menus. And that's, that's, that was stage one. That was the first thing I did was I picked up all the menus in Chicago and I, and I flew to San Francisco and spent six weeks there and I picked up all the menus in San Francisco. And, uh, and so that gave me a hook that gave me an advantage in terms of being able to attract traffic to the website entirely unscalable. Like it's the kind of thing VCs hate, um, but it worked. It got traffic to the website, which is what really, you know, when we, when it transitioned from a, just a guide to an online ordering platform, that was the hook that allowed us to get people to come to the website before we even had any restaurants signed up on the platform for online ordering. So one of the interesting things about that is um, the use, the strategic use of content to build a digital business today. And I find it fascinating that you, as a consumer, discovered a missing. That is to say, I want the, this digital content called menus of all restaurants who might deliver to my house. Right. And, and that didn't exist. And so you got busy doing that. And so you start off by building what it turns out is a valuable piece of content for lots of other people. Right. And that's right. It's yeah. the it's having that content and providing it for people that creates the traffic. Right. And so, you know, the Grubhub's known is no, what's known as a marketplace business. So the the consumers who are using the business, the diners, the hungry people who are using it, they get value from the restaurants. And the restaurants get value from the diners, but it's chicken and the egg problem. How do you, how do you, which comes first? And the answer is neither. The content comes first. Like you, you have to cheat. You have to figure out how to cheat. How do you get people to the website before you have anything of value to give to them? And the answer is, oh, well, you figure out another way to give value that doesn't depend on either side of the network. And there are different ways to do this. It's not always a content play. There's other, there's other ways to sort of like hook people in. Um, Uber did it by, um, they would just hire 10 people to just sit in idle cars at the beginning when they launched a market. That obviously takes a lot more money to do that because you have to just pay people to just sit idle, ready to start doing jobs. And so they seeded one side of the, one side of that two-sided network. Um, but there's others, you have to figure out some hook, some way to cheat in marketplace businesses to get the flywheel started. And, and do you think, uh, Mike, that if you had not done the content play first and the directory play first, and showed up at restaurants and said, hey, listen, we have this vision to build this thing and given them a pitch, but with no traffic and no content, would it have worked? So another 99 customer, uh, uh, 99 different, 100 different uh, uh, companies ended up competing with me in those early years. So it wasn't like people think like, oh, you know, Uber Eats started now Grubhub has competition. We had hundreds of competitors throughout the lifetime of the business, including very fun, well-funded ones like Groupon and Living Social. And so um, obviously none of them went and picked up the menus. And so it didn't stop them from starting the business. But, but you know, entrepreneurs, I think, often fall for this fallacy that you want to be first. And, and that's not quite true. You want to be first best. Like you want to be the, you want to be early for sure, but it has to be good. And um, that was, it was merely the first competitive differentiator that we had was we have content that attracts people by the time other people started doing online ordering that meant that we had let's call it 3000 or 4000 restaurants on the platform and they were starting from a dead stop and so we were we were this concept of first best like we were out in front and then we just kept innovating and so people kept copying us like 
a company called Menu Pages actually ended up getting menus, which we ended up merging with uh, or acquiring later. But like, it was simply a head, like anything that you do that's like a, that's unique competitive differentiator. It's merely a head start. It, so they will, everyone will catch up. And so there's this element of, um, it, it got us out ahead so that by the time the iPhone launched in 2008, and by that point, at that point, I think we had, um, uh, I think, 10,000 restaurants on the platform. And so other online ordering platforms also launched their apps on the iPhone, but we actually had the restaurants behind it. And so a lot of them would tra- be like, well, I'm going to go get Panera Bread or some chain. So we have content and we are like, we already have the neighborhood gems. And so we, we kept trying to take advantage of we've got a, we're a little bit ahead, you know, in different iterations of the business. And so it gave us a head start. That's that's all it did. But that head start turned out to be a multi-billion dollar like value. So a head start's worth a lot. $7 billion. If I, if my research is right. I mean, yeah, give or take, give or half take a billion, I guess. Like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, so it's such a great story, Mike. So, so you started this company in your bedroom, is that right? Or in your apartment? Yep. So, yep. so take me back to those days. What, what, what happens that uh, has you go to work <laughs> in your place uh, on this crazy idea? Yeah, I think, um, and I, I talk a lot about this in the book in Hangry, which just came out, um, about this idea of there's a push and a pull. So I didn't, the push is I just didn't want to work for somebody else. I, I was largely unemployable. I couldn't stand sort of having a boss. Um, but that's not enough. You can't just like quit. You can't just give up on your job because and because you don't want to work like that. Like I just didn't, I, you know, I didn't want to work at that company. Or I didn't want to work for another person. And so when this idea came along, at first it was just a hobby. Like I wasn't all that motivated to work on it. And it existed for a year. Well, first of all, the idea came up even before I worked, started working on it uh, between my co-founder and I. And then it existed for like a year as a hobby before I finally realized I was getting enough traffic to the website from this content strategy that wasn't even a strategy. It was just, I was solving a problem for myself. Um, and then, and then Matt, my, my, uh, co-founder, he ended up selling the first restaurant. I was like, wait a minute, this is like a business. This is like a real business. And I had been driving towards that, but, um, really shortly after that, like weeks after that first sale, I quit my job and started signing up restaurants. It was a total disaster. I talk about this in the book. Like I could not get a restaurant to sign up for this advertising platform for like three weeks. And I, Finally went to borders and got a sales for dummies book. And like that, like unlocked, it was like achievement unlocked. Like now I can sell. Uh, and so I learned something about sales and then it, and then it worked. I started signing up restaurants. What did you learn in sales for dummies that, that created yeah, $7 billion dollars worth of value? <laughs> Maybe I need uh, to read it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, this is, it's also chapter three of the book I wrote. Cause I just quoted what I read in sales for dummies. Uh, yeah. Sales has three steps. Uh, first, you ask a, ask a potential customer, ask somebody what their needs are. Second, you tell them how you can meet those needs. And third, you ask for the money. If you do them in the wrong order, it never works. You have a, a, an abysmally low close rate. If you, if you try to tell people what your product is before you've asked them what they need. And if you ask for the money before you've even gotten to either of those things, it doesn't work either. Also, if you don't ask for the money, it's just a friendly chat. And so uh, you, you always start with like finding out needs. And and that turned out to be valuable for the company as well, because I was gathering a lot of information about the, the larger needs of the of the restaurants as I was signing them up that eventually led towards um, towards a transactional model instead of a, a like a monthly. It's just like an exposure, like advertisement website. And so, right. oh, I could actually sell orders. 
Oh, I can actually sell orders. Oh, this is like way oh, bigger than revenue. I That's way more attractive yeah. than advertising. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. And, um, and so I went from sort of selling leads to selling orders uh, with the restaurants. And, uh, and, and then, and then, um, yeah, that was, that was around the 2005, 2006 timeframe. And then it was, it, Grubhub was started. And, and you folks went on one of the greatest runs of all time. I mean, uh, once that unlock happens, I don't have your numbers in front of me, but, uh, it appears from the outside looking in that once you started to figure out that flywheel, um, it started to move pretty quickly. The category started to tip and, and, and you as the category leader. Yeah, a couple of things happened. And a lot of people have said it's timing. And I will admit that there is an element of luck to success. Um, but a couple of things happened during the course of that. Um, and and taking a step back, like the path to success is not like straight from point A to point B. It's it's more like a drunken stagger. stagger. Like you, you make a lot of mistakes as you go. But that's the nature of innovation is that it has to be experimental. And so... Um, you know, I believe really strongly that you have to like work hard on things to make them work. But then when you find out something's not working out, you have to quit it. Entrepreneurs need to be good at quitting the things that don't work, especially the things they've invested a lot of time and energy into. And so as these different things sort of came along, so the iPhone came out and suddenly it was like, oh, I bet people are going to want to order on their phones, right? Uh, maybe it's not going to be just laptops anymore or even just the natural transition from like 2000 to when I started to like 2008 of people being just comfortable putting credit cards online that happened at the same time, you know, as, as these sort of transitions happened, you know, because our goal, you know, we, we very quickly, you know, after this, this sort of accidental hobby to business sort of element of the initial start, we were very quickly aligned towards this idea of restaurants only make money. We only make money when the restaurants make money. We, we get a percentage of each order. It's not a big percentage we exist to make the restaurants busier and more profitable. And so once that was aligned, things like, oh, make sure that, you know, uh, Pizza Capri in Chicago has a way for somebody to be able to order on their iPhone, right? Like make sure that that Pizza Capri like has access to the best drivers um, because of our tip strategies, right? Like all of these different things started um, sort of falling into place. And so there was this overarching goal we were going towards, which was helping independent restaurants which allowed us to really evaluate whether our experiments were getting us closer to the goal. And so, you know, it's, it was up and to the right, but it wasn't, it wasn't like, um, you know, when you see companies get funded, unicorns get funded. Now I literally had a VC tell me last week and I about fell off my chair that they only invest in companies that are growing at 350% per year or more. And I'm like, yeah. And I only hire baseball players who hit home runs every time. Like that's ridiculous. Like it's just a ridiculous strategy. Right. And Grubhub never, I think it never had higher than an 80% year over year growth rate. But if you do that for 14 years, like you get a really big business at the end. Uh, and you added some mergers and acquisitions and, uh, and and that's that's what really led to the IPO. Well, and it's interesting on, you know, there's there's been all that stupidity in Silicon Valley about blitz scaling and break things and all this sort of stuff. And Look, one of the values of being a tech startup, of course, is moving quickly and new categories can form and new technologies become available and we can move quickly. And so there's value in that. But to your point, if you're going 350% a year on a consistent basis, that's a company that will blow up. I mean, it's a company that can't, I don't care who you are. 
you know, I, I don't know, maybe I'm overly influenced by people like Vaughn Chouinard. I, his book is one of my favorite books. He's the founder of uh, Patagonia. Uh, and he talks about how they consciously made a decision to slow the growth rate down because they wanted to keep the quality where they wanted it. You know, these are not necessarily popular ideas today. And so in your business, a marketplace business is a complex business because you are creating an ecosystem that doesn't yet exist at the time, right? You've got restaurants, obviously you've got consumers, and then you've got drivers. And so if I was starting a marketplace business today, as you have done now, uh, with your new business, which of course I want to hear about, what are the things that you think are the secrets to building a, uh, if you if you would call it a digital marketplace business? So, in addition to solving the chicken and the egg problem, which is you know you, you need a way independent of either side of a marketplace to create value, um, some hack, some cheat, something, right? Whether it's content or whatever it is, you need some way to create value. Um, I think the next thing I would say is that. There's a perfect take rate. There's there's an ideal. It is not a maximal KPI. You're not trying to maximize it or minimizing it. You're trying to hit the Goldilocks zone. And that zone's probably somewhere between 9 and 16%. Um, if you're Ticketmaster and you want to take 45%, that's fine if you have monopoly pressure and get into all sorts of shenanigans and regulatory ca- capture, right? Or if you're eBay and you're taking 4%, you know maybe it's hard to actually... Uh, well, actually, it's, eBay is a pretty good example. I think they actually are higher than that. They're probably in the Goldilocks zone. They exist for 20-something years, and everybody tries to topple them, but they still are running a really great business, right? So um, if the take rate is too high, the supply side of a marketplace will try to try to remove you from being the middleman. And if the take rate is right, if you're if you're in that Goldilocks zone, they don't mind. They don't mind paying 8 or 9 or 10% or maybe 11 because you create so much value and it's not that much of a cost. And it makes it crazy unattractive for competitors to come into the marketplace if you're just taking this paleo 11% because they can't compete. They don't want to compete on price, right? And so um, it just makes it harder for newer companies to come in and, and displace you. And so um, I think that's a secret. The you, you have to have the right take rate and you, and you have to resist, um, really have to resist investor pressure to always increase that number. Hmm. So... The take rate being what you charge, the uplift that you charge to bring me the food, right? Yeah. And- so we uh, we would charge the restaurant at, at the time we were growing the company. We charged the restaurants only. Uh, but I assume they build it into my price, right? No, we we had an audit system that if the restaurant charged a different rate to oh wow, customers, I didn't realize that we would yeah we would remove them from the system. Like so we it, very if the cost of the dish is, is $12 at the restaurant and it's $12, it's $12. That's how it was. And the, so the consumer didn't pay anything extra. And we would say the restaurant's the price of, it's the price of advertising, price of doing business. Um, we bring you a lot of value. We get you more customers. You make a little less margin on each of them, but it's a reasonable rate that we're charging. And, uh, and, and we, some of our restaurants, we were sending them $2 million of orders a year and it was 80% of their business. They were fine with it. Right. Um, but uh, no, I, I think when you're changing consumer behavior, if you're creating the category and you're changing consumer behavior, um, it's hard enough to get people to switch their behavior, to go from phone to online ordering. It has to be 10 times better. And so charging for that can be a really hard, mm-hmm. um, really hard thing to do. And in fact, Campus Food did do that. And it's one of the reasons they, they, we were able to acquire them because it slowed their growth rate so much with consumers. So one of the things I think a lot of people get confused about, particularly with 
entrepreneurs who are truly creating new categories. You're creating a new set of value that did not exist before. So the value for me is the consumer was not there. Sure, some restaurants delivered and you know, there was there was a way to solve this problem if you really wanted to, but not anywhere near what you envisioned and what you became, of course. So that's new value for me as the consumer. And if you're a meaningful percentage of my business as a restaurant owner, then that's net new value because some percentage of those sales that I'm getting through you, I wouldn't have got. The customer found me through you. Or even if the customer knew me as the restaurateur, for whatever reason, they're, cho- they're choosing not to come in. And so from a from a stomach share perspective, I guess, uh, or a lifetime value, at a minimum, you're increasing my stomach share and you're probably introducing me to a lot new, a lot of new customers. Is that, has that been the case historically? Yeah, we had a metric for that. So um, we didn't measure it before we, before we started changing the metric, but my, my gut feel is that people were placing a delivery order around once a month prior to finding Grubhub and it moved to twice a week after finding Grubhub. And so there's an 8x increase in just the amount of delivery food that people were ordering as a result of removing friction from the process. And so, you know, that money's coming from somewhere. It's probably coming from sit-down restaurants and it's coming from people cooking the food they get at grocery stores. Um, but ultimately, we shifted the the amount of food that was being ordered relative to not being ordered. And so, you know, when we talked about competition, we weren't talking about getting a piece of pie. We were like, no, it's, we're not even talking about bigger pie. We're just, we're, we're not even talking about pie anymore. This is a totally different food. Um, and it's hard to, by the way, it's impossible to argue this to VCs. They will never believe it, that you're going to actually increase GDP as opposed to taking money from competition. Um, but, uh, but we did it. Like we, we changed the way people eat. And, um, by the way, we did it in a way that really helped independent restaurants. We didn't have any chains on board on the t- on the on the platform, and that was very intentional. And so, it created a positive impact in the communities we were working in as well. Well, and maybe let's go there. I um, I'm a very enthusiastic eater. I live in a. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm envisioning you just like uh, what's the the Dumb and Dumber scene where he just throws food at his face and he's just <laughs> chomping away. That's yeah. very, that's an enthusiastic eater. Yes. And I'm an equally enthusiastic drinker. And, um, and I live in a part of the world where we have wonderful food. I mean, we really have wonderful food. And so, um, all the restaurants that me and my family and friends frequent are not chains. I mean, I can't remember the last time I went to a chain, uh, maybe an in and out burger, but that would probably be about it. Not not for a nice rest, not for a nice meal. That's for damn sure. You know, Starbucks every once in a while or whatever, if you can't get to a, but, and so the, the interesting thing about that, I love our local restaurants. You know, in many cases, we know the owner, or we know the chef or both, and they come out and they say hi. And, you know, this kind of an experience, it's, it's a huge part of our communities. Humans like to eat. And getting together in a restaurant and the old cheers thing about a place where they know your name, a little bit of that going on. And and then, of course, a local restaurant tends to give a shit in a way that, um, you know, it pains my soul to think that Americans go to Olive Garden and think they had fucking Italian food. And so, A, thank you for that, because <laughs> we had been talking about for a long time in the technology, the technology industry how major new technologies were going to emerge 
that we're going to allow small independent businesses to have the kind of technology back-end capabilities of major corporations. And as a result, they'd be able to compete. And I remember talking about these things in the 90s, talking about these things in the early 2000s. And you could tell there are plenty of people who would look at you and go, that's just fucking bullshit. You know, the winners in the world are the big companies and the banks and the insurance companies. And we would evangelize all this goodness that was coming for SMBs. And they'd kind of roll their eyes. And, and Mike, I grew up in the early days of uh, member local area networking when the land took off and uh, land-based accounting systems for small businesses. And, you know, so I I mean, I was playing Quake, but sure, accounting software, sure. I mean, <laughs> lands were for video games primarily, but yes, okay, I guess they were used for business as well. <laughs> well, you're so much younger than I am. Um, but I guess because I grew up at the when the personal computer was taking off and then they were beginning to be used for business applications, I had a very visceral personal experience of how this technology was not only an equalizer in some cases, but a massive competitive differentiator. And so what you and your colleagues have provided for small local restaurants is truly an extraordinary thing in a world where they're being crushed by uh, the chains and crushed by major distributors like Cisco and, and others. Yeah. And I think, um, and I talk about this in the book in Hangry that, um, you know, the, the pressures of becoming a public public company um, that, that went from being, that was my goal for the company was to help independent restaurants, but it wasn't the company's goal. And I, I talk a lot about this importance of like understanding where you're trying to get to and how that is the same or it's different than the company. And I ended up leaving after the IPO, um, not because I was burnt out, but because I just didn't think that, that my effort was going to, was going to bring me closer to my goal, which was independent restaurants. And if you fast forward the results of that, you know, eight years, um, that competitive edge, the independent restaurants that we were helping thrive, that's large. It, it still exists, but it's not as pronounced as it was. And the differentiation between between the top three players, between Grubhub and DoorDash and Uber Eats, has has diminished in a lot of ways. And what it leads towards is um, each of those entities now has to spend a ton of money on consumer acquisition, as opposed to um, just having people repeat purchase because they had a better experience, a really great experience. And so the, the margins of the business go down. They have to charge more to customers. More of their cash goes to Google and Facebook as opposed to um, either to the restaurants or to the drivers or to shareholders. And so, you know, my, my response to the people who are like, well, that's a pie in the sky. Like, aren't you being a little bit naive? I'm like, no, the company gets crushed when you stop thinking about your customers. <laughs> actually, actually, what I'm talking about is a way to be competitive in business as opposed to um, the fallacy that companies exist first and foremost to create cash for shareholders. That's not true. Companies create exist first and foremost to create value for customers. And they just so happen to create value for shareholder as an accident of the first thing. Yes. Uh, and if you forget that, then then the competition eats your lunch, which I know I just made a pun. But this is the delivery space, so it's appropriate. <laughs> uh, the other thing, too, in, in the broader space of what people have called the gig economy you know, on one hand, we hear about all of the wonderful benefits of it, of people being able to pick their own hours, have a second job if they want one, have some agency in their life, be able to go to their kid's soccer game or whatever, it, you know, punch in and punch out, so to speak. And so there's a lot of empowerment and agency and so forth around um, the gig economy. But as well, uh, you know way better than I, there have been a lot of criticism that that these employees should be employees and not contractors and that 
um, you know, they're being exploited by these various delivery companies and so forth and so on. And so how do you think about the whole part of the ecosystem, the driver, the restaurant owner, and of course the consumer, and you're having to walk a very delicate dance. I can only imagine. Yeah, I think, um, I think, well, first let me start with what's good about the good gig economy flexibility. You named it. That's, that's the, that is the primary thing that's good about it, but it is not a one size fits all kind of a solution for, for workers. Certainly what you give up for that flexibility is you give up economic mobility. You give up consistency and economic mobility and, that that's a really bad thing to do for a long period of time in your life, because instead of having two jobs, it's better to just increase your earning power at one job um, and then have like some sort of like work-life balance and have. And actually, I think you end up with more control over your life. So flexibility in the short term, sure. But also, you know, Uber, like, I don't understand why they, they say that I don't literally don't get it. Like, I literally don't understand why they say that they would go out of business if they had an employee model. Like, sure, employees are a little bit more expensive, right? Um, In the sense that you're not offloading, you're not subsidizing the cost of their insurance with whatever the local community would end up having to subsidize your business, right? Like, so obviously I feel pretty strongly about that. But like, what if you had drivers who were committed, like if you hired as employee your best drivers at Uber or at Grubhub or wherever, um, if you hired your best drivers to create a better quality experience for your for your customers instead of them being mercenary, um, I think that ultimately is a competitive differentiator. And so I I think that there's a nuanced, balanced approach to this that like is better for everyone. And and this leads directly into after the IPO and, and I took this this bike trip. You know, I rode my bicycle across the United States, got to think about what I was what I had just accomplished and what I want to do next. You know, it, that these ideas very much drive the next business I created, um, which I'm happy to talk about, but we can wait if you want to, if you want to, you want to you wanna, like drag this out a little bit more. I'm happy. No, no, I, we don't need to drag out anything. <laughs> I, 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 so I just, if you thought it, and obviously it's been quite some time since you were at the company, but you think Grubhub or any of these uh, marketplace delivery businesses can be successful with the people who are currently gig workers, contractors as employees, if that was the right model. If I was a board member, I'd be advocating very strongly for a hybrid hybrid model where we hire the best employees uh, and um, and we create flexibility for those people who need it. And the ultimate driver, the driver, (laughs) the ultimate goal is what creates the best experience for customers and what lets us because that drives repeat purchase rates and it lets us spend less money on advertising and more money, more money goes to the drivers and to the restaurants. And it's a it's a virtuous cycle. Yeah. Um, those those three entities, those three largest companies, they have to figure out a way to differentiate. Otherwise, they're just burning cash. And uh, and the way to differentiate is not consolidation, not just get bigger. Like that's like that's like the kitty math version of how how to like compete. Uh, like you could actually just be a better company. And I'm excited to see who does. I think Grubhub has a big advantage because they have a higher percentage of independent delivery restaurants. Um, but it, it's it's the hard work. It's the hard work that one of those companies has to do. Well, and it appears I don't have data in front of me, but I know that when we talk to the our UPS driver or our FedEx driver, and I often ask the question, oh, how do you like working at UPS? And almost always they say the same thing. We love it. We love the company. They treat us well, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And so, you know, it's it's an old axiom, but it's not a dumb one. Happy employees tend to make happy customers. Yeah. It's really interesting because UPS... Um, used to have a reputation for that not being the case, that it was really hard to work there, but you made a lot of money. 
And so the idea that it's, it's a good job and like, and you make a lot of money is, um, it's an interesting transition for a company to make. Yeah. Like I said, I, I haven't done a survey of their drivers, but, uh, you know, <laughs> I, I'm a talker. And so, uh, I talk to folks and, um, I don't know, at least the ones around here seem to be pretty damn happy. I'm very curious to drill down and I, I don't want you to go anywhere you don't want to go, but, um, why you felt your mission to make a difference for independent refer- restaurants and the company's mission as it went public and beyond, why those th- two things diverged as opposed to converged? Yeah, I think, um, I think there's there in, in any public company, there's pressure for quarterly profits and this idea of, um, you know, a, a investor a is totally fine. If you do make some short-term choice, and then two quarters later, they can sell the stock that they bought for twice what they bought it for, regardless of what happens after the fact. Like individual investors might be thoughtful, thoughtful, long-term thinking, you know, impact oriented. But but John Q. Public, taken as a as an individual, you know, the aggregate person that is the stock market, is a short-term narcissist. And so, with that pressure for quarterly profits. Um, it's really easy to just drive the prices up to your to your customers, regardless of what that's doing to your competition in the long term. And so, um, you know, the pressure to sign up chains, the pressure to sign up, you know, Taco Bell and Yum Brands, um, the the pressure to um, which I, they're fine, I guess, but they're not the they're not the spice of life. Like they're not they're not the thing that really like drives a ton of value to anybody in that ecosystem. They, they, they're just not as good for communities as independent restaurants. And so I just felt really strongly that that was the value I created. You know, when restaurants brought me flowers because I kept their business in business during the, during the housing crisis downturn, um, like I was like, well, this is it. This is what life is about. It's very hard to communicate that message in like a quarterly stock meeting update. Right. And so it's, I think it's just one of the challenges of going public. And so, um, the people involved are all great people. Like I'm, I'm not trying to disparage anyone, uh, but I just think that that ownership structure ultimately isn't, isn't as valuable for communities. And so uh, I was like, well, I don't have to be part of this. I can go start my own private company. I have since modified my thinking and in that, uh, you know, Patagonia is a public company and they do a great job of telling investors exactly how they're going to create value uh, in the communities that they serve. Um, ben and Jerry's does the same thing. Etsy does the same thing. There's there's a lot of companies that do this because they make a commitment. And so when I started my next company, I made sure it was more the the DNA of the company that we are going to create value in the communities we serve as an end in and of itself, uh, not as a means to an end to create short shareholder value, which is pretty much like blasphemy to VCs. But also it's really working. So they're still interested. <laughs> <laughs> So um, maybe let's go there. Um, tell me about Hey Fixer. Yeah, so Fixer Fixer dot com is an on demand handy person business. It looks a lot like a marketplace. You use your phone as a remote control to get a handy person to come to your home and fix things. And uh, and with the very significant difference that we employ the workers full time with benefits, and so it's not a gig economy model. And the reason we chose that was because the supply of skilled workers is constrained relative to the demand, and the there. Every company that sets out to connect skilled professionals in your neighborhood to you is going to fail if there are not enough skilled professionals. And so we said, well, why don't we just increase the supply and open a training program and train people from scratch uh, and then wrap that in a really good consumer experience where we where the, the, obviously the app works well, the billing works well, the scheduling works well. But we even like train train on customer service skills and 
shaking your hand and making eye contact and cleaning up after ourselves, all of those things. And chart, and then we charge a premium for it. And so, um, so that's the company. Uh, we're in five cities, Chicago, uh, Chicago, Seattle, uh, Phoenix, Denver, and Dallas. Um, and, uh, probably like likely to launch San Francisco and LA, uh, in the next few months, uh, next couple months. Um, and so, uh, that's, that's the business. It, it would have taken off already by now if we didn't have this little pandemic in the middle of trying to create this business. Uh, <laughs> I mean, people coming over to business. work in the house um, was yeah. frowned upon there for a little while. <laughs> I mean, between the second week of March, 2020 and the third week of March, 2020, we lost 85% of our revenue. And uh, that was stressful to say the least. I was like, Oh, this is a black swan event. This is terrible. I like, can we just never do that again, please? Like I, can we not have another pandemic, please? And, and Mike, there, there had to be part of you that's going, Hey, I did this once. I'm assuming it was a very financially lucrative thing for you and your family to build Grubhub out and do all that stuff that you have some flexibility. I can afford, I can afford to eat pizza for the rest of my life and not worry about it. <laughs> right. Yes. So you, it's true. You know, you didn't have to start another company to keep food on the, on the family, as George Bush said, and so in, in a moment like that, you're thinking, why the fuck did I do this again? I literally said those words out loud at one point. And, but there's an answer to that. And the answer is um, when, when we have success. So I'm a, I, I talk about this in Hangry, like that a personal definition of success is really important. Everyone will try to spoon feed you one. You know, college professors, parents, kids, government, religion, friends, everyone will try to feed you their definition of success. And, and so I say, well, who is defining it for you? And the answer should be you. Right. And so, um, so for me, I was successful because I created a huge company that helped independent restaurants be more likely to stay in business. It wasn't because of the cash. It wasn't because of the IPO though. Those things are great. Everyone should do it. It's wonderful. Um, and so you want to hold on to the the cash then Mike. (laughs) Um, well, so, so then we, we say, why me? A lot. We say why if we get cancer, we say why me, and we want some sort of an answer. But we don't really ask that question often if we have a lot of success. Uh, well, why me? Or if we do, the answer is because I'm amazing, right? Like because I did this. Um, but the reality is, it takes a lot. It takes a team. It takes an idea. It takes a little bit of luck. Um, it takes timing. It takes a lot to sort of hit that level of success. And so the question why me is a little bit irrelevant. And the the real question is what now? And so for me, the answer was I'm going to reboot trade education in the United States in a gender inclusive way, which is a ridiculous thing to say. It's so arrogant, right? Like, can you say, can you say that again? Yeah. I want to reboot trade education in the United States in a gender inclusive way. You want to reboot. Yeah. I'll say, I'll say it slower. Say it nice and slow. Some of us didn't go to school and we drink a lot. Yeah. I want to reboot trade education in the United States in a gender inclusive way. And we're doing it like we we've created an entry path into the trades. And at some point we'll have, you know, I've, if everything goes according to the plan, we'll have 40,000 employees and 10,000 will go on to become electricians and plumbers and 10,000 new people will enter the trades as handy people um, every year. And so so that is why that's the answer to why the fuck did I do this again? Yeah. Not because I want to make a lot of cash, but because uh, I want to leave a legacy. I want to make, leave the world to be a better place than when I'm starting. It. And the whole reason I wrote the book was to communicate this idea that think about that early in your career. Think about it. Don't think about it after an IPO. Think about it early in your career. How am I going to impact the world? Because businesses are huge levers for social change. 
whether we want them to be or not. And so being intentional about that is really important. Yes, thank you for that. The other thing I love about what you're doing is um, as the world shifts from native analog to native digital, a challenge for many people in the trades is how do I be successful as a tradesperson in a native digital world? Or said in a more simply way, if I'm an independent restaurant and I realize that people want to order food on their phone, how the fuck can I be successful in a digital first food world, dining world? Uh, doing that again in the trades is amazing to me. And I, I don't know, I, I just have a love for people who do this kind of work. And um, the ones that I know around here uh, are masters at what they do. And if they're, if they're older than 40, they're generally not digitally savvy at all. And they're successful yeah. for one reason and one reason only, and that's word of mouth, which is awesome. And they've achieved mastery and they have a reputation and it's working. At the, at the same time, however, I recently um, met a guy named Randall who is a, a, body work, a car body work specialist. And he decided enough was enough. After all these years, he wanted to go out on his own and do mobile dent work. Um, and he, he's, he's an absolute Obi-Wan Kenobi bordering on Yoda at his work. But the tough part is the consistency of the business because I don't know exactly how old Randall is, but, you know, he's, he's not good on TikTok. Let me say it that way. <laughs> and so yeah. this ability for you to create a platform for um, masters in the trades and up and coming people in the trades to have some consistency and yet be digital first in what is, of course, a very analog kind of a business is a fascinating thing to me. Can you, can you maybe just tell me a little bit more about what's going on at Fixer? Yeah. So let's talk about your, your friends who, who do the work and, and they probably do great work. Like the actual quality of the, of the work they do in the home is usually very high for people who are in this industry. Um, they don't need to go digital. They have absolutely no need to because the supply is so constrained relative to the demand they will always be busy, right? You can triple book somebody, you can burn them, you cannot answer phone calls and people will still call you back and beg you to show up. You can treat your customers like garbage. Uh, and so I don't think that's a high enough bar. Like, I, like at you know, at Fixer, we're like, well, we're gonna create a really good customer experience. Also, that person doesn't necessarily charge, you know, 120 or $130 an hour. They charge like 70 or 80. Um, and that's partly because even if you can't find somebody, you're not going to pay $120 an hour for bad service, right? And so we said, well, if we, if we, if we take these folks, both train people and take people who can do this work and we create a really good experience around it, we can charge more for it. Um, and so that's, that is the business that we created. But ultimately what we're going to, what we want to do is we want to increase the number of, of people in the trades. We want to shift this issue of like, that you can't find anybody. Of course you can find people like fixers training them like crazy. Like we want to change that. And what we think will happen is instead of people using a handy person once or twice a year, we'll just be showing up every month and working on the things that are on your mind, dealing with the maintenance of the house proactively. And so we're just going to actually increase the number of times that people use a handy person. Um, and at that point, then everyone will have to be digital because, because we'll, we're, we're trying to usher in that, um, that change. So you're doing what all category designers do, which you did last time, which is creating value from nothing. And as a result, you created a market, you created a category, 
And in this case, you're expanding the category because what I just heard you say is if people have a reliable source for someone or some group of people who can help them fix shit in their house, then they're going to do it more often. And if they do it more often, you're increasing the size of the demand which that allows you to increase the, uh, the, the supply and to continue to build legendary plumbers and legendary carpenters, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. And uh, the, the only one who loses in this is the air conditioning manufacturers because they don't break as frequently, right? <laughs> and, the, and, the, and the water heater manufacturers because they don't break as frequently because they're properly maintained, right? So, um, yeah, I, I mean, that's, this is what we're trying to do. It's a tall order. I mean, it's a huge industry and it's resistant to change like most industries are. Um, but that, but this is what we're trying to accomplish now. And it's all informed from the first time I did the experience with Grubhub. Like I obviously picked a business that was harder to build the second time around, partly because I could cheat. Like I can get financing easier than a first time founder can. I once, by the way, when, when you, once you have an IPO, investors take your call. They don't always like write the check, but they at least take the first call. And so, um, and so I knew that I was starting a harder business and I knew that it was going to be a, a, a taller order, but I also knew I had unfair advantages in doing it. And so that's why we rolled the dice on this one. Well, I'm, I'm really stoked you did. I think it's great. And I, um, I have friends that do this kind of work and um, I think it's very exciting. I think it's exciting for our communities. I think it's exciting for homeowners and it certainly is exciting for people who want to enter the trades and have a great career path. You know, many of us think it's fucking terrible that you can't live a, a good life and provide for a family uh, in many cases as a carpenter or as a plumber or as a roofer, et cetera, et cetera. And I think you can, I think even in the current state, people can do that. The challenge is getting into that work. If you don't have an uncle or a dad to teach you, then it's really hard, which is, which is why women have largely been locked out of the industry um, not entirely, um, but it, it's it, there's just barriers to get in. Um, anybody who's already a plumber will tell you, "Oh yeah, I make I make great money. I'm fine. I'm good. Like I work really hard for six months of the year, and then I take like six months where I work, you know, not not that hard. I do some emergencies here and there, and they make bank. Um, and so opening that up to more people, um, it sure is better than being a, a, a Grubhub driver. I got to be honest. Right. And so uh, and so I, I hope that. I hope that we create a hiring problem for my former company because we're having people enter the trades. Uh, I'd be fine with that. Uh, Yeah. All right, Mike, I don't want to keep you too long. I know you've got a world to go change. Um, Anything else you want to touch on before we wrap? Uh, No, I mean, if the old, like I said, the reason I wrote the book was to convince 10 people, uh, ideally in Silicon Valley or wherever startups are being done to think sooner about the overall ecosystem that they're changing as they as they create things not just shareholder value uh, because it's a lot easier to take a small course correction early like that and and think about that early than it is to like steer that ship after it's already big yes Uh, and so i just i really encourage people to think about wherever they are in their careers whether they're starting things or they're or they're an executive or they're a worker just to think about what their goals are and and early and often try and check in about whether or not things are moving in the direction they want it to and they're making the impact they want to in the world. Awesome. Mike, thank you so much. You're welcome back anytime. I'm a huge fan. I love what you did before. I'm excited about what you're doing now and I wish you uh, uh, giant success for the whole company and continued massive tax problems. Uh, yeah. I also hope for those things. Thank you very much. I appreciate having me <laughs> Thanks, on. Thanks, Mike. Well, there he is, the legendary Mike Evans. 
He's the creator of Grubhub in the entire category, the category king. He's one of the few entrepreneurs in history to go from an idea in his bedroom to an IPO and beyond. Pick up a copy of Hangry, a startup journey wherever you get legendary books. All right. We would like to thank, of course, you. Thank you for investing part of your life with us. It, it means a lot to me and everybody involved with the creation of this podcast. My friends at OneLifeFullyLived.org are the nonprofit helping you dream, plan, and live your best life. If you want to help people make a difference, check out the number OneLifeFullyLived.org. My friends at Bottleneck.online are the world's first dedicated distant assistant. If you need an assistant, who's nowhere near you and will never get anywhere near you, check out bottleneck.online. My friends at Atranet have been building legendary B2B websites in Silicon Valley for over 20 years. If it's time for an upgrade to your website, don't forget, it is often the first experience people have of your company, and it needs to be legendary. Check out atre.net, that's atre.net, and ask them about the rapid relaunch program. My friends at Shakeology are the world's first superfood dessert. So here's the thing. How much do you love dessert? If you're like me, a lot. However, we all know that a lot of dessert is a great way to put on a lot of, uh, uh, a lot of poundage. Uh, Shakeology is a superfood dessert. Uh, check it out at Shakeology.com. It might be the greatest gift you can give yourself. And I like my Shakeology with my Malibu milk. The world's first whole plant, flax milk, created by a mom. Check out Malibu Milk with a Y.com. That's Malibu Milk with a Y.com. It's time to shift from soy, from uh, almond milk, and from the toxic uh, oat milk to the good for you flax milk at Malibu Milk with a Y.com. All right, I need to remind you that today's information is provided you solely for informational purposes, and this podcast is the sole property of the Lockhead Oddcast Network. And it contains content known to the state of California to cause radically different thinking and produce insane new exponential uh, value. All rights do remain perturbed. We are produced and edited by the greatest of all time, Jason DeFilippo. Sarah Knox and Jamie J do our technical execution, and they built Lockhead.com. Why not go to Lockhead.com right now and subscribe to Category Pirates? Show notes by our friends, uh, my friend uh, GM Simon. And uh, our friends, the Bobus Brothers, RJ and EX, do our web development, and Cedric Biros does our web design. Our law firm is Weedon Jack, and our accountants are three balance sheets to the wind. Also need to let you know that all episodes are recorded in high-powered Dolby ADHD audio. Dolly Parton was right. Listen to Social Distortion. Remember, everything is the way that it is, because someone just like you changed the way that it was. Thank you, Candy Dandy. She keeps all the trains running on time. Love you, Mom and Dad. And hey, Colin, this podcast really ties the room together, doesn't it? Today, our deepest apologies go to Scott O. Malonek, uh, editor of Inc., I mean Stink Magazine. Sorry, Scotty, we just ran out of time for you. That's it, my friends. Please stay safe, be legendary, and until we're together again, follow your different.